0: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. Plushcare.com/weightloss.
1: Hello, and welcome to your book, the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm Daisy Buchanan. I'd like to start with some exciting news. I want you listeners to be the first to know about this. On Tuesday, the 14th of July, so if you're listening to this um, on the day it's going out, that's tomorrow, the team at Sphere and Little Brown and I will be sharing the cover of my debut novel, Insatiable. It's designed by the hugely talented Becky Guyett. I'm really, really thrilled with it, and I've been struggling to keep it to myself. And when I share the cover on social media, I'll also be sharing news about a special edition of Insatiable that will be available exclusively from Waterstones. We'll have some pre-order links in the show notes. If you want to support an author, pre-ordering their books is the very best way that you can do that. And as a reader, I love pre-ordering because it feels as though I'm sending a present to future me. Now, on to this week's guest, the author, broadcaster and book addict Pandora Sykes. Pandora's brand new book, How Do We Know We're Doing It Right?, is out this week and it's a thoughtful, funny, nuanced and beautifully written collection of essays about the way we live, the choices we make and the joy and pain of living through the information overload age. Many of you will know Pandora very well through her work as the co-host of the smash hit podcast The Low, and Pandora's brand new chart shopping podcast Doing It Right. We talked about the economics of happiness, underrated future classics and Jilly Cooper's pubic inventions.
2: Apparently, if you colour code your books, it's the first sign of uh, being a psychopath.
1: Oh, what's the second sign? (laughs) I don't know, any more
2: signs? (laughs) I stopped reading at that sign.
1: Did you put them like this straight away when you moved in, or did you have a few different systems?
2: Yes, I have colour coded my books for quite a few years. I just, more just I find it really therapeutic. I love nothing more than getting all my books out and checking that there's still books I want to keep, because if not, they go to the charity shop or they go to friends, and then putting them all back. And actually, I did one weirder thing. I do it quite often when I've got lots of work and I'm feeling stressed, and so I like to distract myself by doing something completely unnecessary and physical. And what I did recently is... Some of the shelves are also non-fiction and fiction, so it's like colour-coded. So this oh, is... Because I was
1: wondering about, um, I can see, because I saw a big swathe of so yellow. So that's non-fiction, so. that shelf. These are mainly books I read for the
2: book. So that's like the book research um, shelves. Uh, and then it does slightly fall apart on the yellow shelf. It's mainly fiction, but we have got some non-fiction that snuck in because annoyingly they had... Yellow covers, so it's not a faultless system, Daisy.
1: It oh, looks pretty good to me. When you were reading and researching for a book, were there any books that really surprised you, or books that you will revisit in the
2: future? Yeah, quite a lot of them. It was definitely not like I had to do the research, and it was of no enjoyment or interest aside from the book. So, I discovered the work of a um, economist called William Davies, who has written a couple of fascinating books, one of which is called How Feelings Took Over the World, uh, Nervous States, How Feelings Took Over the World. And it's all about how we started to make decisions from a point of feeling rather than rationality, which I think is a really interesting one to read at the moment. And another one in that kind of vein was uh, Against Empathy by Paul Bloom, which is about how, which was something I'd been thinking about for a while, about how empathy maybe isn't, the way that we need to be approaching decisions, uh, because empathy requires you to put yourself in someone's shoes, which is kind of impossible and a bit insulting to assume we can shapeshift into everyone's lived experience. And he makes the case for radical compassion instead. So I just found books like that really interesting because they they felt like they were written for right now, but they weren't. You know, lots of them were... Some of them would be, like, 20 years old. Um, I read a lot of Happiness Economics, which is bonkers, like... Sort of the GDP of happiness, or people trying to count the GDP of happiness.
1: Because I, th- you know, I love the idea of knowing more about economics, and for shame, I have tried to read things that can be quite dry. I guess and you know, there's like a paragraph that's a list of numbers. It's awful. Um, I can feel my brain stretching and not quite reaching.
2: The interesting thing about I know what you mean when you hear the word economics. It I think that sounds quite terrifying. But happiness economics isn't really um, economics. It's more trying to look at the ways in which we value happiness or looking at the kind of industry around it. Um, Like, this is, you know, this is another one by William Davies, the happiness industry. And the tagline is how the government and big business sold us well-being. So it looks at everything from... I think i remember that coming out yeah so it looks everything from like wellness to the way in which we talk about mental health or he says the commercialization of our most private feelings Mm. which is obviously social media that is you know we externalize our feelings and then these companies make money off that data you know facebook is it's been shown to like harvest that information so it's actually more just quite fascinating but then I do love non-fiction, maybe this is not fascinating to everyone,
1: <laughs> and that's okay. I am very interested, and I love that thread in your book, sorry, is it
2: alright, oh, i put that there, do you want me to get a coaster? No, I'm going to be, I've ruined this, can you see, that's actually, fucking Dolly. Just, that's Dolly it. Alderton for you, <laughs> that is a Dolly Alderton, God knows what that is, a tiny, piddly
1: little bottle she's put there. And she brings her own wine and puts it on She there. brings so many drinks, yeah. <laughs> the thread in your book about social media comes up in so many different ways. And I think that we're so used to, oh, you know, it's only the internet, it's only computers. And it seems really weird to give it as much prominence as we do. But then it is our whole lives. And it's become this weird... But I think I talk about this book on the podcast all the time. But I maybe, I think it came out maybe 10 or 15 years ago, A Super Sad Tree Love Story by Gary Schneegart, which I've done a horrible job of pronouncing his surname. But it is a... Um, do you know how to say it? No, <laughs> oh. I've never heard of that book. It's riveted already. It's a dystopian novel, which normally I'd be like, oh, no, thank you. Yeah, because I I'm a bit no thank you When you're like, dystopian oh, novels. they're on the dusty rocks and they're foraging for food and they've yes. not seen anyone. I had to read Brother in the Land at school and that put me right off the genre. <laughs> but this is, it's scary because it's got more and more and more true every year. And when I read it. I think Twitter was just starting I don't think Instagram existed yet and the way it predicted the way we just volunteer all of this information about ourselves and what we love and prioritize and care about and what we don't it's chilling it's really eerie but it's very funny as well
2: I think I find it quite irritating when people talk about social media as if you're either on it or you're not Mm. on it. And therefore, if you're not on it, you're not affected by it. But online discourse filters into offline discourse, regardless of whether or not you've ever picked up Twitter, because Mm. it it becomes the way that newspaper headlines are written. It informs the movies that are made, the books that are written. You know, even the way the colour that a cafe is painted, because it might make it more Instagrammable, Mm. or the food that they're offering, because they'll have noticed trends online. So the idea that you can be impervious if you don't have an online self is, yeah, I just, I think it's, I think that's a fallacy. So yeah, it is woven a lot throughout the book just because I think we have to start seeing ourselves as, you know, it's one whole self. It's not two completely separate selves that you can opt in and out of.
1: And definitely in terms of the way that I communicate with people and the way I I spend my time over, you know, this is, we're just out of lockdown. This is the first live podcast we've recorded since February, I believe. This is the um,
2: first thing, yeah, I think this is the first person I've had in my home. This is, Daisy and Dale are, this is the first person. Yes, I know, it's crazy, isn't it?
1: Uh, but thinking about, I suppose, the way I speak to people and who I speak to versus actually being with people. And I have, with the varying levels of success, tried to moderate that a bit over this time to make sure that I wasn't just constantly online and totally. looking for connection and feeling more alienated and looking harder and harder like it's a bit like you know when people say oh you know they're they're lovely they're just a dick when they're drunk I'm like no they are a dick <laughs> <laughs> I think we have to
2: <sighs> see I think the they could be lovely and a
1: dick maybe
2: that's where we're going wrong that people have to be lovely or dickheads maybe we're all just both
1: thank you pandora Zachs. we now go to <laughs> contain multitudes but back to lockdown what have you been reading for fun I was just thinking as I was looking at my bookshelves I haven't pruned I
2: haven't weeded out any dangerous you know Mm -hmm. what happens if I have my no I won't have my um uh Michael Gove moment what have I been reading for fun well actually hold on sorry because these are all the ones that I've read them the last few months so let me actually just get those
1: out because I can't see them on the shelf oh I know I think you just talked about small pleasures by Claire Chambers on the high low Jeez. I am desperate to read that book and because we are doing okay. this hourly and listening I want to say how much I love that cover it's a really great cover isn't it I'm a bit jealous of yeah. that cover there and we tell go me about I am not your baby mother by Candice Brothwaite because I just bought that from the Margate Bookshop. Shout out to the local and um shout out to the
2: indies um that it. book is sensational. I ripped through it, and it it's billed as a portrait of Black British Motherhood, but like all brilliant sort of non fiction memoirs, it's about so much more. It's about family and culture and obviously it's about race but it's also about classism and the way all those things intersect and i learned loads from it but it's also a rattlingly good yarn like she's so engaging Candice i loved um interviewing her i just think she's yeah she's an amazing voice it's funny because she really didn't want to write that book either she didn't want to write about motherhood you know she only wrote it she said because she'd had a few other ideas and they hadn't got off the ground and of course it's just absolutely brilliant so yeah I think you'll love that
1: I cannot wait I wanted to ask you and this is a hard question of all the because on the high low, you are just such cheerleaders for books you've got the nation reading again um but it is so joyous to hear so much enthusiasm and you know that the breadth of, of your reading as well do you have a favorite of all the books you've talked about on the show I
2: can remember that I talked about on the high low and loved Queenie by Candice Carty-Williams that obviously recently cleared up at the Bookseller Awards.
1: That book really dazzled me and surprised me and I started reading it feeling like it's one kind of story and then there's that kind of switch halfway through and I really loved and I found really chilling but so brilliantly observed the way she talks about her job and the way she's treated there and the sort of, I'm doing making air quotes, because it's a podcast, and you can't see me, um, the black Bridget Jones tag, Mm. but how it still seems quite radical to have a, well, any woman talking about contemporary life and being single and young and ambitious and trying to make a life yourself and struggling with so many things. But to be talking about, I suppose, you know, what it's like to do that as as a black woman, I didn't expect to learn as much as I did. I was quite ashamed, I guess, to not know a lot of the things that um, that are in Queenie, you know, about sort of her experience and you know, I think I've been naive about certain aspects of dating certainly.
2: I think it's a Trojan horse of a book because I I think she came quite strategically to it. As someone that worked in publishing, she could see this gap and I think she she wrote it from that place of seeing what was missing. And she writes in a very kind of easy to digest, uh, lively prose. You know, it's not overly complicated, it's not trying to do bells and whistles and all that things. And but I
1: think it had because Queenie is so immediate and it is gulpable and I love that kind of book. And I think again, this is, it goes back to the dusty, dystopian wasteland. It's like someone is looking at a tree for ten pages. I'm not going to Love that, whereas being thrown straight in and hearing someone's voice, and she's got such a singular voice.
2: And, and and I think as well, just managing to pack in what she packs in, but in a very readable way, it's very, very clever. Because at no point do you feel like there's an agenda or uh, the characters are merely being mouthpieces for views or experiences. These are just very convincing people living their lives but as you say the amount that you learn and the points of view in the book that are just I mean we know it's not in publishing we know how horrendous the publishing industry has been in terms of diverse voices so I agree reading something like that feels which is mad radical
1: a writer i can see a lot of who i know that you love and i love her too and i would love to chat about her is zadie smith
2: yes i can see white teeth as i said that to you i couldn't believe i was rereading the other day i can't believe she wrote white teeth when she was
1: 23 sometimes i think about that and i just want to i don't know really isn't it i just want to give up and um, be a welder
2: she did which i did not realize which i love she gave herself a shitty review for a non-ex... Can I say that word? Yes. She gave herself a shitty exactly. review for a magazine I hadn't heard of called, like, Butterfly or something. And basically, she'd had incredible reviews and then this one review, you know, that said that Smith is, like, the precocious child always demanding to be, like, heard singing in the middle of the room. And it was written by this reviewer that no one knew and it turned out she'd written it about her own book.
0: Oh, which is ineffably cool.
2: The conviction and confidence that comes with writing willingly, not even just, like, engaging with, but actually putting together a terrible review about your own book.
1: (laughs) Could you imagine doing that? Because now as well, you you don't have to even wait, do you, to get a magazine to commission you and be in disguise? You can just do it on Amazon. (laughs) You
2: control yourself very easily.
1: Um, And I love that book, uh, The Most Fun We Ever Had by Claire Lombardo, uh, which felt like, in some ways, a really old-fashioned family saga. But with a fairly contemporary setting. Just the the detail of it and the slowness of it. And actually, have you read either The Vanishing Half or Silver Sparrow?
2: I haven't read Silver Sparrow yet, but I loved The Vanishing Half. I haven't got it on my bookshelf right now because I have lent it to my sister. But I have got Oh no, I haven't got the mothers there either, because I've also lent that to a sister. But that I thought her first, the mothers. Should have had much more um, hoopla around it. it. I thought it was absolutely brilliant and it really reminded me of, um, reminded me a lot of my favourite authors actually. I could see Shades of Zadie in it, I could definitely see uh, Shades of Meg Wallitzer in it. And oh, I love Meg Wallitzer. The Vanishing Half is so, so good. And there was a brilliant New Yorker book review the other day which did what the best book reviews do, where it actually taught me all about uh, the whole kind of literary canon of books about uh, white passing black women Uh, and it looked at how The Vanishing Half had taken and reworked Mm. some of those tropes and then also how she'd added in some of her own which was so interesting as someone that does not know that genre at all to see how it fit within and who she was inspired Mm. by.
1: Because the book I really loved about that is Mislaid by Nell Zink which is kind of the reverse. I wanted to circle way back because I wanted to know can you tell me about The Mothers? Because I don't know what that's about.
2: The Mothers is about a, it's kind of about the support and galvanizing, but also uh, can be destructive community of mothers. It's about group motherhood and and the kind of clucking of it, but in a beautiful way because it becomes something communal, but also in a way where, you know, the Chinese whispers and Mm. the rumours that are spreading about various children among the mothers. But But, I think she's an amazing new voice, Britt Bennett. Like, I think she's going to be or should be just huge.
1: i read... I think I read the... Um, the Vanishing Half and Silver Sparrow like one after the other I think I read Silver Sparrow first and that came out before in American Marriage but it wasn't published over here oh, isn't that crazy I don't think I knew that bonkers um, but because they're both about estranged families in different ways yeah. which is why I thought of those when I saw Claire Lombardo because we, you know we have both talked about sort of you know sisterhood and families and being drawn to those books that are a real celebration of sisterhood but now being really haunted by these books that are about the Weirdness of sisterhood. I, I have not this read one. the interesting... Oh, this
2: is so it. you. This is so oh, you. Yeah. Yeah, so is Meg... yeah, so this is by Meg... Bookshelf
1: of many colours. Isn't that a great cover?
2: Yes, this is by Meg Wolitzer, and I, I actually think I might have nicked this from a on from my honeymoon. I was in a hotel in Nicaragua, and I think I found this next to the hammock, and I nicked it. Um, and this is, uh, if you like most fun we ever had then you'll love that the thing i love about the most fun we've ever had is that i'm sure you have read and enjoyed such a fun age by kylie yes Reed. and they were at the iowa writers workshop together and they oh. thank each other in there oh, but imagine being imagine the two of you being like wow that you know the workshop must be like that was a good year that was a good crop <laughs> i haven't got such a fun age isn't here either because i must have lent that out I need to start keeping my library ticket system again. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I did love that book. Though. I love the the funniness of it. The way it just skewers that influencer culture so delicately. You know, in someone else's hands, it would have been really clunky and clumsy and awful, but it was just the lightest touch.
2: It is the lightest touch, and it's also not just... It's, just, it's not just about one thing
1: well what I really want I don't know Kylie Reed, if you're listening um right at the beginning it talks about how um Amir is from a family where everyone is very kind of purposeful and everyone's got hobbies and passions and she doesn't have that and I kind of I want to read that book about her growing up in that family
2: I tell you what I've just seen that I have read in the last year and actually we've got a coming on the high-low soon, is We Need New Stories by Nezreen Malik, who's a Guardian columnist. And that is all about... That's probably one of the most important non-fiction books I've ever read. And it is all about the myths that we fall into thinking and upholding in society. And it so elegantly dismantles everything you thought you knew about or how a capitalist society should run it 's an absolute stick of dynamite this one i can 't recommend that
1: enough. That sounds great so that 's coming in September so no that came
2: oh. out that came out that last came year, out year, but it 's about to come
1: out in paperback. Ah brilliant um, in a couple of weeks yeah I need to sort of ask about books that i don 't recognize and much to know more about, but I have just seen beautiful ruins which I remember reading that a few summers ago and just thinking, this is the ultimate summer holiday book. Such a good title, that. I love that edition as well. I've seen a few, but that's the one I had where it's got this sort of. You see, you could add a pinch, put that on your. on this shelf with the many different colours. Yes. Yes,
2: interesting uh I thank you for your feedback I'll consider it uh yes Sorry, I agree that was, I, no, no, you, no, I'm you not here for that. No 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 no, that no 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 I'm not I'm not don't worry I'm not that precious about it yes uh this is such a lovely cover I think it makes it look like a real old timer of a book mm. doesn't it literally looks like a penguin one from like the 90s I was gonna say
1: you know how they say so don't judge books by their covers I think if I'd I seen know, the other version of it got, to, I it? probably wouldn't have been as drawn to that as I was
2: I read it when I was on holiday in Italy and it's set on an Italian island in the 60s so that is is it's always nice to accidentally read a book where it's set. Unless, of course, you're just sitting in your house in London reading a book about in a house in London, then it's probably a bit less of a thrill.
1: You've got NW by Zodie Smith. That's that experience. If you want to have a staycation read... I love Mary Gatesville and I've not read Lost Cat. Is that short stories or is that yes, novel? It? No, this is coming out in November. That's a proof and there's
2: a lot of stuff that I think is going to blow people's mind in there. It's ostensibly about her lost cat, but it's about a lot more than that. But I do love bad behaviour. Is it
1: like a continuous story or is that... Is it
2: kind of... It's, an, it's her first non-fiction. Ah! It's about her young cat, Gatino, who goes missing and she weaves in losing him with... um all sorts of experiences in her life namely the fostering of two teenagers
1: because i loved her and i think i found her when i was a teenager and and it was just so dark and distressing and passionate and upsetting and that sort of i had that emo like oh she's the writer for me and i think if i had come upon her at a different time in my life i might have been like oh that's that's a lot but I wish I'd discovered her as a teenager. I didn't discover her until two years
2: ago when I read Bad Behaviour. And I've since bought Veronica, which is another one of hers, isn't it? And One, one Girl Fat, One Thin, which yeah.
1: always strikes me as a title that probably wouldn't be made now. I think that must be why, right because I was probably about 12 or 13 and reading a lot of terrible, terrible YA books that were essentially guides to having eating disorders that were, you know, called cool things like a hope for genuine. I had like a sort of very pale girl on the cover looking sad and um, two girls one fat one thin sounded like more kind of bulimia porn for me and it was actually it was that but it was so much more. It was one of those books that I read and thought I didn't know you were allowed to do that.
2: Yes there is an element of that with Mary Gates School isn't there which is um, which is always a reminder that you are this idea that you don't have choices in what you write about is ridiculous that's your own your own imposed rules, isn't it? She shows that if you want to rip out the real book,
1: rip it up. Well, I suppose that it's one thing to have that audacity and another to find a publisher who wants to encourage and promote that audacity. Yeah, too.:
0: This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile.
1: We'll be back to Pandora soon, but now I want to tell you about the book I adored, and I think you will too Silver Sparrow by Tiara Jones, who won the Women's Prize for Fiction for her novel An American Marriage. Silver Sparrow is the story of two sisters, Dana, who knows all about the other daughter of her bigamous father. And Cherise, who embarks upon a complicated friendship with Dana, unaware of their biological connection. It's set in Atlanta over the 70s and 80s, and it's a gripping, dazzling and immersive exploration of race, class and family. Dana and Cherise are so vividly drawn. Jones is a stunningly gifted writer who creates characters that feel as real as your family. I've thought about Dana and Cherise every day, and as soon as I finished the book, I missed them. Silver Sparrow is published by One World and out now. Now, back to Pandora. Oh god, a writer who I feel ashamed of not reading, and I know I would love her, every time I see her on a shelf I feel a twinge of not having got to her yet, is um, Deborah Levy. So that's my shelf of what I'm going to read next, it's my like
2: to-do list shelf, and there's actually a few more next to my bedside table. I have read half of The Cost of Living, it is quite short and very thoughtful and deeply personal, and... I don't know why I didn't read the other half. I think I must have had to abandon it when I had to read lots of non-fiction for work, Um, but
1: it's on the to-do list to return to. Do you find that when you're writing, there are certain writers you can't read because you feel yourself adopting their voice, or do you just read and read and read?
2: No, I don't feel that so much. No, I suppose the only, literally the only kind of strategic decision I've made with reading is that I've been trying to read more fiction recently because I've read so much non-fiction in the last year and I feel like I've been missing out on some really good fiction. But no, I don't I don't worry about taking on someone else's voice. I, I don't think I'd know how to do that, to write like someone else.
1: Because yeah, I think a lot about the rhythm of it. I still think about um, when we had Nina Stibby on the podcast talking about her letter's home to her sister and that she'd forgotten that they all read... Adrian Mole and like, you know, MK and the boys were. And they all started leaving very like mole notes to each other. And there's a good sort of couple of months, I think, when um, she's writing to her sister and she's like, oh, this is clearly me (laughs) trying to be Adrian Mole. That's so funny.
2: Um, I imagine you do that quite a lot when you're younger. I probably did when I was younger. I do remember that I was obsessed with America um, for a while and um, insisted on like writing to my mum, you know, putting an O in her name. And writing just really weird, cheesy stuff to my older sister, like, you know, hope you have a lovely day now. Uh, So I think I was more taking on weird stuff I'd watched on my friend's Sky TV, because obviously we did not have Sky as a teenager. It's
1: weird how, because I remember that thinking anything American was hugely aspirational. And I also remember going to friends' houses, he had Sky and being quite casual. And like, oh, maybe we should just watch TV. And they're like, no, let's play. Let's do something. Because we had the four
2: channels. And they did so many shows on um, like Nickelodeon. Oh, God, I feel honestly just thinking about it and getting like a sort of bloom of joy in my chest. That really was the best thing uh, in the world. (laughs) Being able to watch the Olsen twins on Sky.
1: Do you have any favourite America books? Because I was thinking as well how now the idea of, you know, dreaming of American ways and in American life, but, oh, no. No, no, thank you. We, yeah, I, I mean, I read
2: tonnes of books by American authors, actually. I mean, Claire Lombardo, who we're talking about as American, highly you read. There's
1: Jones on your shelf. Stuff. And um, that, anything set in and around California and Los Angeles in the 60s and 70s, that would be, if I could order people to write books for me, that would be my, my premise. Yeah, I
2: think that's probably a lot of um, Halle but uh, is. American and a tess- But when you were
1: growing up, was there anything where you're like, oh my God, this is the America I want to live in?
2: No, actually. I don't think I read much American... You didn't have a sweet valley face. I I remember reading Prep by Curtis Sittenfeld when I was at university and I was fascinated by that.
1: Because the genius of Prep, I think, is... It's so good, but also it's so good for English kids who yearn for that life because Lee is this outsider who's observing, as we would be, and that sort of... The carelessness of them and their, I don't know, you know, everything they take for granted and that level of privilege. And I do think that's something that's a bit different in this country in terms of the way people live. I get the impression, I could be wrong about this, that British people are conditioned to put up with a certain level of scruffiness and things being inconvenient that a surprisingly large minority of Americans just wouldn't do.
2: Definitely because they were kind of moving towards that friction free, seamless life much earlier than us. We've always had that kind of progress secondary, haven't we? Although it almost feels like we're on, because I suppose globalisation now almost feels like we're on a level playing field. It used to be, I remember when uh, fruit roll ups came to the UK and I felt like I'd been waiting 10 years. For a fruit roll-up. And it was like... It was always... All like Reese's Pieces. Mm. Now, of course, you can get them in every newsagent. But they were really hard to find.
1: No longer does anyone come back from America... Oh my God, you have brought me Levi's and Jolly (laughs) Ranchers. Swedish fish, still quite hard to find. In a very large Sainsbury's, you might. There is a book about America well it's about lots of things and I loved it so much and I don't know if you've read it but if you haven't I think you'd adore it Um, The Luckiest Girl Alive by Jessica Knoll which I think I talk about on the podcast all the time and it was sort of marketed as a thriller and again based on the cover i would have thought not for me no thank you um but it's about a girl at prep school and sort of briefly falling in with the popular kids and something awful happens and she is shunned and kind of you know shuns herself but then years years and years later she's working at a magazine she's got this very glossy life and this perfect uh fiance i'm making air quotes again he's a disaster and a monster and she is just trying so hard to be perfect and polished and make sure the past doesn't catch up with that. And I think the observations about class are really subtle. And everyone anyone who says that America is a class of society, it's like that's not true at all.
2: I used to love thrillers when I was younger, or at least I thought I loved them, and then I realised that I was always going to the last page of the book so I wanted to know what happened. And so I don't actually enjoy reading a thriller now because I know there's a big reveal at the end and all I'm doing is counting down the pages until I get there. It's really not a type of book that makes me feel good.
1: I do think that more often than not, the people who, and then partly it's jealousy because I could now struggle with plot and just, you know, I love dreaming up people and then having them do interesting things that are both make sense as things that they would do but are also surprising enough to make it worth reading the book. I'm like, oh, that is hard. You'll enjoy my upcoming novel, listeners. <laughs> but... I think that there are lots of thrillers that are written by people who are much more passionate about what is happening than who it happens to. Which is fine. That's the kind of book that people love. And I just, I like the opposite thing. I'd rather have characters that I can really feel. And they can just be in a room for 300 pages. But
2: I think that's why we both love A Love Story for
1: Bewildered Girls. Mm, oh, I loved that Yeah, book. there is. <gasps> I felt like that did not get the love it deserved. No, it didn't. Oh, here she is. This was,
2: this was, um, she won, I think, one of Penguin's writer schemes. You know, they do, like, she was a young, Mm. um... Emma Yeah, the Right Now. She was part of the first intake of mentees for the Penguin Random House Right Now scheme, which aims to seek out, mentor and publish new writers from communities underrepresented on the nation's bookshelves. Um, This is a finished copy, so I think I've lent my proof out, but I compared it to A Girl's Guide to Hunting and Fishing. She then wrote to me and said, that's one of my favourite books. Uh, So I'm you know, glad that you picked up on that. But it did really remind me. And actually, and speaking of A Girl's Guide to Hunting and Fishing, this one, which again did not get anything like the pickup, it should have, uh, came um, out ages ago, The Wonder Spot. By Melissa
1: Bank. Who that what? is a loved-looking copy. That she,
2: so I got it off eBay. I, I try and buy, um, unless they're new, I buy my books off eBay. And um, she wrote A Girl's Guide to Hunting and Fishing. And The Wonder Spot is, it's just the most brilliant Buildings Roman. Like if you like I any... love a
1: buildings roman. I, I mean I did my
2: dissertation on them at university, for God's sake. Ridiculous. Um God, I've got books coming out my ears now. How I'll just put those there.
1: Oh, because I've not actually read A Girls Guide to Hunting and Fishing, a little bit like Deborah Little. Like, I know I will like that. I know I'll read it. You will, and then you will. It does just feel sometimes like everywhere I get books, books for totally. my face. I know
2: and I, it's such an honour receiving proofs of books um, and I've had to do something that feels very counter to my yearnings and say I just can't have any more proofs at the moment because I'm just not reading, you know, look at that shelf, I'm so excited to read the shelf so I just need, I need to catch up before I let any more books over the yeah. threshold.
1: That is something I did in lockdown that felt really indulgent and just lovely, it was rather than feel that oh my god I've got to read these you know 900 hot books for autumn I'm just going to read some of the things I've always wanted to read never got to like this
2: like this has been on my shelf for two years
1: a letter to the sky by John Boyd. Boyd. again great cover so his most
2: famous one is um is, Invisible Fury? That's exactly it, yeah. And that is next on my read list. he has got that. a brand new one out as well.
1: Ooh. That was as though it was on like, House of Games or something, and I'm like, I know the answer to that. Like, no, it's not a quiz, it's not a point. It's a so the what's great this titles. about?
2: That is about, not to make you feel pressure, but you will also love that, that is about a young writer who essentially cannibalises other people's stories. So he seduces, um, not always romantically older writers and uh, or other writers and um yeah steals their books i'm getting
1: big um mr ripley vibes here it
2: is, is but it's not again like you say it's not a th- it's it's not a thriller i mean there's a thrilling element to it but it's more just like a psychological it's, it's very people funny
1: people as well oh great yeah well, that's I, must read that. I can't wait i'm delighted to see you have a copy of polo by jilly cooper
2: that's where jilly cooper is how i learned about sex I read all of, I was a very precocious reader and I read her books when I was 11 and I didn't know what most of the words meant. I didn't know what either of the C words meant and I didn't have Google at the time and no one would tell me what they meant. My mum just said she didn't know. Um, What's the other C word? Come. Oh. Come and cunt. (laughs) No, I guess I must have known what that was. I did not understand all this talking of coming and going, <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, and also she is a, a fiend for um, I think uh, sixty nine. it's is always like a swashbuckler. Is the whole the trademark of a? And,
2: and she did expert expert And the, lover. The, my only major criticism. I mean, obviously they are farcical and escapist and um, ridiculous. But my only major criticism is that she made me believe that blonde women have blonde pubes and I, and I later found out that you cannot have blonde
1: pubic hair. Oh, I didn't know that. I mean, well, I've, I've never so? seen any, but... I
2: should Google that. I'm pretty sure you can't. I not Can <laughs> you get blonde pubic hair? Oh, yeah.
1: <laughs> a high amount of eumelanin, with little femo-melanin, melanin, results in black or brown hair It's the ratio of eumelanin. Oh
2: god. To be fair, look, I'm not finding what I want on Google, but I remember asking two very naturally blonde friends, and they said they did not have blonde pubic hair. So that that is the extent of my research. So I feel like she's lying about that. We could
1: go to Sweden and make a documentary about this. Is it in, no? It's in um. Uh, I think it's in Riders, where American Helen sprays herself with feminine hygiene spray and Rupert's really upset about it Rupert Campbell Black the handsomest man in England with a cock like the post office star but I think she's used hairspray by accident but that whole like I didn't know that hygiene spray was a thing that people used um just
2: thinking about Helen and Rupert makes me feel anxious because she was so jittery and nervous and quite cruel especially to her children and Rupert was so cruel to her so just thinking about their relationship it makes me feel like panicky
1: for them. <laughs> well I was just thinking about how uh, Janie Lloyd Fox was a proto cool girl and it's I mean it was something I loved to read um, and still think about often but when I was impressionable and that sort of oh you need to be you know more like Janie and just be like very. Janie was a bitch. She wasn't she? A bitch. Oh god, and she get so She gets so much worse in the later books. Um, Yeah. Is it in... My favourites are her earlier books, though. Definitely. There is one, I don't want to upset you if you haven't read it, but there's someone in those books I love very much who dies, and Janie is just dreadful.
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know.
1: I know. But I think, because she is so politically incorrect, I sort of feel much more comfortable where she, it's a consistent universe, whereas I think later, and, you know, I love Jilly beyond all sense, but when she's sort of trying to be... Oh, my God, when the
2: boarding school and the state school all make best friends and all start going out with each other. Yeah, it doesn't really work, does it? But again, it's 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 escapist. It's... I don't... You know, I don't need Jilly Cooper to be the most factual... No. ...culturally progressive. She's in her late 70s now, like, you know... I think we have to do an element of letting books exist in their time. That doesn't mean that they should be written like that now. And that doesn't even mean that reading them might be really unpleasant for some people. You know, I think you have to consider your own needs and anxieties when you pick up a book. And if it's just going to upset
1: you or... um... Well, you can say the same about Jane Austen, can't you? That she is... Genius, but she is writing about a world, and there is, and also a long time
2: ago. I don't know if I've got any Jane Austen on my shelves, have I? I can't say. I do. You know what? It's that thing, same as like William Faulkner I had to read her at school, mm. and then so I've never been curious to. I've never been curious to revisit her.
1: What did you have to read at school? Can you remember what the
2: Pride and Prejudice?
1: I love it, but that book it's comes same, with a lot of baggage. So
2: heights that mm.
1: like I, I can't having studied it. The best way to make anyone read a book, well, I think that's why I love Mary Gates girls so much, Um, because it felt so forbidden. And anything that, because it's so intimate reading, and anything that feels like it's for you and just for you, and being one of 20 kids having to read Pride and Prejudice and being told, she's the greatest satirist of the age. satirist, satirist. But yeah, it, it just, it kills all that is good about reading. But I did see on the other shelf, a book that I love and I loved it for that reason that it felt forbidden but I have a feeling that you did not like it which is *Value of the Dolls I think I did like it
2: no I think I did like it did I say I didn't like it oh oh I found it really depressing ah yeah I mean it's it's not exactly a it's not a happy ending is there no I suppose I kind of I found it really depressing actually I feel depressed even talking about it oh
1: god sorry. I think it's good no I'm joking I think it's good though I don't think that's a reason not to read it. I mean, uh, I do think that's kind of a Trojan horse book as well. And again, I think it's really interesting in the context of when it was written, where it now it feels, I think, almost tame in places, but that it was deliberately written to be quite grubby and scandalous and sensational. But then you've got a lot of kind of... It reminds me a bit of, um, I want to say, The Room by Mary McCarthy, but I might be wrong. But I'm sure that it's a sort of... It was an early three women, but about four women, but just about a very sort of simple, very wealthy, privileged white women going around in the sixties and seventies at a time of great social change.
2: I do, I think I think the reason why I found it so depressing is obviously like the women are just treated so appallingly by the men. But I the thing that I think is most fascinating about it was the deep dive into, you know, pill culture, mm. and um, also obviously at that time a lot of them. Took uh, uppers as a diet pill because they had speed in them and I found it interesting the same way that I found um, Betty Friedan's uh, oh god what's it called The Feminine Mystique Feminine Mystique exactly Uh, that book was I found incredibly formative actually especially when I was writing my book because a lot of the things in The Feminine Mystique are things that I think women are struggling with now Mm. uh, which is kind of how womanhood is seen and how it can be flattening and um that you know she said that it's she defined kind of womanhood in the 60s as the boil that would not burst and i think when you read valley of the dolls you get that similar feeling that like womanhood is sort of well, it's suffering in Valley of the Dolls, isn't it? You feel really sorry for the women.
1: They are the ones who are sort of providing absolutely everything. Oh, God, that's a really great book that I've just read. I don't know if you read it. And um, The Girl with the Louding Voice by Abby Daray.
2: No, it's on my. Oh, it must be. If it's not there, it's next to
1: my bed. Must oh, be next to my bed. Oh, Pandora. Um, so they've got this. Uh, the heroine, Adini. I don't know when I last read a book where I just fell in love with the protagonist so hard. You know, even that women who are outwardly powerful song as well. No, Did song.
2: So, which is obviously about Truman Capote and his uh, kind of society swans, these five women he was best friends with. And um, it, that was actually edited by my editor for my book. And she, um, yeah, these, these kind of society women who have everything, like Lee Ransow everything at their feet and you know they look incredibly beautiful and they're very rich but they are treated pretty shabbily by the men in their lives including Truman you know including their best Mm. friend because he writes a book about them or uh, that got turned into kind of a series of long form articles for GQ and it's based on a true story obviously so there's a lot when you're reading it you're like how much of this is true because Truman Capote comes across awfully you know as a man that they all trusted and his loyalty is flipping an instant and they're all just you know everything is copy for him
1: well i guess it's like in cold blood isn't it that is a great book there is a short story of his that i adore i don't know if it ever came out kind of as a novella but it's um i think it's called a christmas memory and it's about again i think it must be quite autobiographical and it's him as a very young boy with um his grandmother, who I think maybe had Alzheimer's or something, but she was treated by the family like a child and behaved like a child. And she was his playmate. And they were sort of each other's like closest confidants. And it's about them preparing for Christmas together. And it's a story of just such shattering, devastating sweetness and love and honesty. And it's so pure. And then at the end, it's heartbreaking because I think... She gets put in a home and he gets sent off to military academy. Oh, but look. I know, <laughs> you're tearing up talking about it! But it's so, so sad, and, so, and I suppose perhaps that's why, if it that was part Aww. of his life, that you would go through something like that and you would become bitter and horrible and cruel yeah. and a venal journalist, but to know that a writer is capable of something of that depth of feeling. going to say, of oh, the books on that shelf, other than the ones we've talked about, what are you excited? If I could give you a week off and you know nine to five you can you don't have to worry about child care or anything else and you can just sit down with a book what are you going to sit down with
2: i am really excited to read brown baby by nikesh shukla which is out oh, in february.
1: february 2021
2: he uh, has edited several anthologies uh, already the good immigrants which was for over here and then the good immigrant usa which was um, American Writers, and yeah, I'm a big fan of him, and that's obviously quite a personal book for him, so I'm really excited about that one.
1: Oh, fantastic, what was his novel called? The one he wrote, Destiny, that's what I'm thinking of.
2: Yeah, this is, um, so it says on the back, a love letter to the author's mother who passed away just before his eldest daughter was born. Oh, that sounds totally delicious. A Memoir of Race, Family and Home.
1: Not unlike Rick Eryxameda, I Never Said I Loved You, which is a book I loved. I think I read it on holiday and there was lots of hooting and then crying on the sun lounge. <laughs>
2: there's so much in that book. It's hilarious and devastating, isn't it? And it's also um, so original. It's kind of quite a bonkers book. The My favourite bits are actually when he was writing about his relationships with women that are obviously very creative and uh, passionate and kind, but also like kooky, you know, they're, they're, they're they're different. Like he obviously likes really creative women that don't fit into a mould, and it was a joy
1: to read it's about really, women like that. Yes, yes. I like those bits in the way that I like or love the book and the films of Noah Baumbach.
2: Like you know, he moves into his girlfriend Lily's house, and she puts some. Um, she hangs these cocoons everywhere, which at some point mm. turn into really large insects that just live in his bedroom.
1: There is the bit that I think about all the time, and I think it's quite near the end and I can't see it, when he's on the plane and he's trying to reassure those nervous women next to them where... And he's trying to say the plane is OK to them, and he said, the plane is... Sava <laughs> That's a very lovely memoir, that. I wanted to ask, and this is a really mean question because you have just written a brilliant non-fiction book that I adored, but are you going to write fiction? Are you thinking about it? Oh, I'm not thinking about
2: anything beyond week by week or even day by day at the moment I think I feel like if hopefully that's the legacy from the pandemic or certainly I'd like it to be for me is to just be a bit more present in the work I'm doing rather than thinking what's next Um, I definitely do not have another book in me right now Um, I, I think I need to let this one
1: come out and see how it does first how are you feeling about that
2: yeah, nervous, nervous, but apparently that's normal. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely pretty worried, but um, I think, you know, I, I did the best job I could on it, so I think I just have to hold on to
1: that, and then, you know, you put it out in the world
2: and let it, let it do its thing.
1: I uh, do you think the nice thing about books, if you come from journalism and you're used to producing things that people react to quite quickly is that i think people there's a more of a a generosity with books maybe that people do have time to really let things percolate and it's more of a i don't know there's a, a willingness for the reader to come in and be with you so i think it's weird i don't know how you'll find and i think it's different for every writer but i found it slower but sweeter i guess
2: Oh, that's nice. I'd, I'd be up for Slower But Sweeter. That's going to be my tagline for 2021. Slower But Sweeter. <laughs> oh,
1: I like that. Huge thanks to Pandora. How Do We Know We're Doing It Right is published by Cornerstone. It's out on Thursday, the 16th of July. I love it. And if you like Zadie Smith and Gia Tolentino, you'll love it too. It's a breath of thoughtful, fresh air in a world of frenzied shouting. I'm Daisy Buchanan and I've been your brick inspector. Thank you so much for joining me. Your Booked is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by ACAST. Follow us on social media at YBooked. I'll see you next time, but for now I leave you with this from Muriel Spark. It never really occurred to her that literary men, if they like women at all, do not want literary women, but girls.